You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We are your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are kicking off a two-episode series on a topic that <laughs> got us a, quite a few messages and and, uh, and DMs. We're going to talk all about infant feeding. So we're going to talk about breastfeeding, formula feeding, supplementation, everything in between. And we have two very special guests who I'll introduce in just one moment. But before I do, let's chat briefly about last week's episode. If you missed that, we tackled the topic of intermittent fasting. And we were joined by Megan Featherston, who's a board-certified sports dietitian. We talked all about the diet. And of course, we dug into the evidence to support it and maybe also to refute it. So if you if you have not yet tuned in, definitely check that out. So so without further ado, I am so excited to introduce this week's guests. I'll kick things off with Dr. Dina DiMaggio, who's a board-certified pediatrician, co-author alongside Dr. Porto, who I'll introduce in just a moment, of the Pediatrician's Guide to Feeding Babies and Toddlers, and most recently, Medical Research Director for Bobby Labs. Dina currently lives in New York City with her husband and two daughters. Dr. Anthony Porto is a board-certified pediatric gastroenterologist and associate professor of pediatrics at Yale, and he's also chief medical director of Bobby Labs. But his most important title is dad and proud father to his two children. So we do want to disclose that this episode is brought to you in partnership with Bobby Labs, which is the scientific research arm of Bobby. Now, before you get all upset with us, the goal of this episode is to provide you with the latest science on infant nutrition. We will not be talking about or endorsing specific products, including Bobby. As with any and all of our content, we have complete and independent control over what we're presenting. Again, we are not endorsing any products or brands. Um, we're not saying formula feeding is better than breastfeeding. We are simply providing expert information on infant feeding generally. One more disclosure, I, Jess, am a scientific research mentor for Bobby Labs as well and serve as a data impact expert to help design and review studies on the on the topic of infant feeding. And we do want to announce that Bobby Labs offers research grants via their annual request for proposals. And the submission period is actually opening soon. So if you're doing research in the field of infant feeding related to nutrition, behavioral science, or sustainability, be sure to subscribe to their newsletter to get notified when the application is open. And of course, we're going to provide all these links in our show notes. Dina, Anthony, thank you so, so much for joining us today and welcome. So great to be here. Thank you for having us. So before we get into things, I just want to set the stage. So I pulled up some stats from the CDC 
And they present this information on their page. Again, we'll include links to this. But among infants born in 2019 in the United States, most, over 83%, started out receiving some breast milk, and 78.6% were receiving any breast milk at one month. And then at six months, almost 56% of infants received any breast milk, and about 25% actually received breast milk exclusively. Now, we know that families can face many challenges when it comes to breastfeeding, but the data still show that most infants start out breastfeeding and many still receive some breast milk at six months. So um, also just want to mention that um, the American Academy of of, uh, Pediatrics, as well as the World Health Organization, they actually recommend exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of an infant's life. And they say that there's no need to introduce infant formula or other sources of nutrition for most infants. And beyond six months, breastfeeding should be maintained along with nutritious complementary foods. All right. So one of the things that we once said on our page that got us a lot of heat was that fed is best. And we've done infographics that we'll reshare in our show notes about breastfeeding, formula feeding. Um, we've, we've talked a bit about the composition of both, but we really want to get into it. So Dina, can you maybe sort of, you know, set the stage here? What do you tell your, your patients, the parents of your patients? Can you just sort of set the stage for infant feeding? in general? Sure. So the old breast is best versus fed is best debate, you know. And obviously the AAP last year updated its policy statement on breastfeeding and the use of human milk, um, stating breast milk is the normative standard for infant nutrition. So it's the gold standard. But as a pediatrician, I promote breastfeeding as much as I can, you know. And and it's clear, you know, the policy statement is based on research and reviews on breastfeeding as the gold standard. You know, and I have plenty of patients, you know, that are happily feeding their three-year-old still breast milk. And, you know, I have three-day patients that come in that, you know, breast milk is flowing and the baby's doing great and mom loves breastfeeding, you know, so breast is best for them, you know, and they're happy and we promote it, you know, but I'm also thinking of the patients, you know, that I saw like a week ago that, you know, was three days old and now with COVID you get sent out of the hospital quicker and the baby, the mom was breastfeeding 25 hours out of the day and the baby was crying and, you know, she couldn't understand why, the, you know, the baby was crying even though she was breastfeeding and the, the baby was dehydrated and lost already 12% of their weight and for that baby, you know, they need needed formula. That baby needed formula supplements. The baby was getting dehydrated. You know, there's pretty instances where I have, you know, families that just don't want to breastfeed. They had, you know, poor experiences of breastfeeding in the past and they have been a second child and they don't want to breastfeed. Or, you know, moms that are returning to work and their baby's four months old and, um, the, you know, the guaranteed pumping breaks that they had at the office just didn't happen. They were too busy and their breast milk supply is going down. And they come into the office with the guilt in their eyes having to formula feed. And it's okay, you know. So for those families, that is best. You know, so, I, so my theory is, and I tell patients, it's not black and white. This is medicine. You know, and I'm tired of, like, the dichotomy of all and the guilt put on families. We're all just trying to do our best, you know. So my theory is, is best is best, you know. If breastfeeding is best for you, great, you know. If you need to, you know, feed your baby formula or decide to formula feed, like I have plenty of, um, you know, gay dads that can't breastfeed, you know, then fed is best for them. 
So I think it's a personal decision and it's a parent's own feeding journey and we provide you know, the evidence for breastfeeding and do breastfeeding as much as we can, but when it's not possible, it is fine. Formula is not poison, you know, it's very safe to give. I love that. So I've sort of openly shared my experience with, you know, trying to breastfeed. And I just remember that, you know, feeling as a new mom when I had my son just being fed, you know, from, <laughs> no pun intended, you know, from, from lots of family members and fr- friends, it was so much pressure to breastfeed. And I wanted to breastfeed and I actually really enjoyed breastfeeding, but I had issues with, um, I mean, this. sorry if this is TMI for folks, but my anatomy, I have flat nipples. I needed to use, um, what are those like, uh, you know, rubber extenders. I saw lactation consultants. I was stimulating nipples. <laughs> we were doing it all. Like we were really, really, really trying. And, and I did have access to those supports and was very fortunate to have access to lactation consultants and incredibly supportive, um, you know, pediatrician who was trying to help me through the process. But it was difficult for me. And then, and I know we'll get into this later, then when I made the switch to, you know, I, I was supplementing with formula, then it was, oh my gosh, which formula to use? And oh, you want to use the formula that's closest to breast milk. And I, you know, I had in-laws sending me articles about poisons and, and, and formula. And just so nice to hear a pediatrician, you know, an expert like you just really reiterate that we should not be feeling pressure or guilt no matter how, how we're feeding. So, so Anthony, I mean, have you, you're a pediatric gastroenterologist just like, do you, have you also encountered, you know, parent, I'm sure, I already know the answer to this, who have struggled, like, how do you talk to them? How do you get them through this process of infant feeding? Well, I think, you know, it's very similar. So as a pediatric gastroenterologist, I see the infants who maybe aren't growing well, or children who may have allergies, specifically cow's milk protein allergy, which tends to be common during that infancy period. And it's very similar. We have families who come in and they're trying to breastfeed. We try to educate, we try to provide all the resources, but there's a lot of guilt involved. And I really think, you know, the AAP, when they updated their policy, said it best. You know, we as pediatricians really need to provide the information, educate the families as best as we can, but really do it in a way that parents feel supported, don't feel guilty, because there's enough pressures of parenthood that to add another layer when you have, you know, the whole point of infant formula is to have to ensure that your child adequately grows and develops. That is what is in infant formula. So really supporting the family decision and figuring out that how to do that in a non-judgmental way. Do you think that more support is needed prenatally and postnatally to support parents' feeding journeys? Can we talk about that for a minute? Of course, definitely. I mean, it's hard on parents. You know, you're sitting in these hospitals and you have, you know, a whole team with you. Nurses are trained in lactation, you know, um, a lactation consultant that comes and visits you. And then after now, you know, for normal vaginal deliveries, we kick parents out in 24 hours for C-sections two days. When it used to be, I feel like parents used to stay there for a week with support, getting, you know, the baby used to the latch and learning how to breastfeed and then you know you're sent home with a baby and you're like now what <laughs> you have a baby there no support you know and a lot of parents I have plenty of parents who used to work um, you know that you know go back to work immediately they're cleaning women or you know in jobs like this where they can't you know have support for breastfeeding they there's no paid maternity leave you know lactation consultants at least where I live cost like 375 an hour you know this should all be free we should have more governmental support paid maternity leave um, you know lactation support when we need it and not just send home with a baby and no support system all right so let's focus first on um, on breast 
breastfeeding right now. So what are the short-term and long-term benefits of breastfeeding um, for the infant and then also potentially for the mother? Uh, Dina, Anthony, can you uh, kick things off? And then I'd love to hear from, from Andrea from an immune perspective because we hear all the time, uh, at least, you know, we receive so many comments from folks saying that breastfed babies have, you know, stronger immune systems, better, uh, more robust immune systems. So, so let's get into it. Benefits of breastfeeding. Dina, Anthony? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think when you think about breastfeeding, there definitely are both short-term and long-term benefits. You know, the AAP recommends this for six months because it has been shown to decrease the risk for a sudden infant death, infant mortality in general, as well as lower the risk for respiratory um, infections and diarrhea or other infections like otitis media. Long-term, there's reduced risk for asthma as well as eczema, specifically in the first two years of life, and then also obesity, both childhood obesity and as an adult. And there's definitely benefits for mom too. You know, studies have confirmed the impact of breastfeeding longer than 12 months in decreasing maternal type 2 diabetes and hypertension, breast cancer, and even ovarian cancer. Andrea, can you talk a little bit about passive antibody transfer maybe, especially, you know, we get tons of questions that, you know, during COVID where, you know, we know that uh, infants under the age of six months can't get vaccinated. So if mom's been vaccinated, how does that work? Is any protection conferred to the, to the infant? Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we've obviously talked about that in the case of, of SARS-CoV-2, but in reality, you know, when a baby is born, they are colonized with a variety of microorganisms, um, often from the mother during the birth process. And that starts to create their own microbiome. And that microbiome kind of sets the stage and starts the process of, of immune system development and education. But a, an infant or a newborn's immune system is not nearly as fully developed as even a one-year-old's immune system, and certainly not as a child gets older and, and encounters more microorganisms in their environment, both, both potentially pathogenic but also harmless or benign microorganisms. So breast Breastfeeding can confer protection to some of these illnesses or infections that can be particularly serious um, to an infant early in life while their immune system is really in that critical period of becoming educated and developing and things like that. So typically when a mother is breastfeeding, they're actually passing immunoglobulins, which are the official term for antibodies, through the breast milk, which are then consumed by the infant. Now, there are certain types of antibodies that will be digested and won't offer the full benefit, but there are other antibodies that can be consumed and, and will persist or survive kind of the digestive process. And those antibodies that the infant consumes can offer some temporary um, protection against a variety of illnesses. So a mother will basically secrete antibodies to things she's been vaccinated against or illnesses that she previously had and developed memory immunity to. And so the baby will ultimately get the benefit of those as they're nursing. So, you know, we don't want to minimize the impact of that. Certainly with, with some illnesses that can be particularly severe for very young children, that can really offer a benefit. But of course, you know, making sure an infant is nourished is obviously, um, you know, primary goal number one. So if, you know, someone shouldn't be shamed if they're unable to, to breastfeed in a certain instance. So Anthony, are there certain times when mothers shouldn't breastfeed? 
or is it always recommended? In general, there are very few reasons that a mom or cannot breastfeed. So there are certain metabolic conditions such as galactosemia that would be a contraindication of breastfeeding and then certain infections including HIV and then maternal use of drugs as well as certain medications. And this is where having the conversation with your OB and with your child's pediatrician is helpful because most of the time medications can be compatible with breastfeeding. And we usually use a resource to look this up, make sure that it is safe to do. But in most instances, there's no reason not to breastfeed in terms of medical conditions. What about pump and dump? What about if if mama wants to unwind with a a glass of wine at night? Uh, Can we talk a little bit about alcohol use? And then we should probably also touch on, um, you know, drug use as well. Sure. So alcohol, in terms of that, alcohol is not an absolute contraindication. And usually, after consuming um, alcohol, the highest levels of concentration in the breast milk would be about 30 to 60 minutes afterwards. And so we know that about up to one glass per day is is not really known to be harmful to the infant, so that's safe, but we wouldn't want to drink more than that. And you could, at that point, pump and dump that feed um, afterwards after someone has one glass of wine or, or the equivalent. So another thing I remember early on when I was struggling to nurse, you know, everyone was talking about tongue ties. Dina, what is a tongue tie? What do you do if, if, you're, if your infant has a tongue tie? Can we talk about that? Yes. For some reason, every, every there's been an exponential increase in the number of children diagnosed with tongue tie in the last decade or so. You know, and this is just because we realize, you know, that babies with tongue tie might affect breastfeeding. It might help to um, release that tongue tie, but it's also a lot in social media and a lot more practitioners that are doing um, diagnosing tongue tie and then um, releasing it. So the official definition of uh, tongue tie or ankylglossia is a condition where of limited tongue motility um, caused by a restrictive lingua uh, frenulum. The most classic is the anterior frenulum where you see this kind of band at the tongue that causes like a heart-shaped tongue. And classically, we look at it where the tongue can't move past the gum line. Um, So the moms will have um, pain with breastfeeding, and the nipples might be sore, and there'll be a difficult latch. And it's a little controversial. So breastfeeding phrenotomy, you know, the long-term effects of breastfeeding rates for infants who undergo undergo phrenotomy are not um, 100% clear. Because if you have trouble breastfeeding, it doesn't necessarily mean your child has a tongue tie. And if your child has a tongue tie, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to get um, that tongue tie fixed. Um, and in fact, you know, there's been studies looking at babies that have tongue tie and don't have tongue tie, uh, babies that have tongue tie and get it released and not released, showing that there might not be that much of a difference in breastfeeding rates in, at one, three, and six months. However, with that said, if I see you know, a true tongue tie and the mom is having pain from that tongue tie, I do often refer to the ENTs to get that um, for anatomy done um, and that mom to have um, less pain with breastfeeding and that might extend her breastfeeding journey. Okay, so what about Anthony? Can we talk about ways to boost breast milk production? You know, what if someone is experiencing a a low supply? Are there things that we could do? Because I remember, (laughs) oh my goodness, I feel like I'm really roasting my mother-in-law right now. (laughs) I don't mean to, but when I was struggling, I was getting, you know, shipments of of these specialty teas and tinctures that claim to, you know, to boost supply. So can we kind of tease out what's real and what's not evidence-based? Sure. I think that, I think it's really important. Dina sort of pointed out just making sure that 
when a child's feeding, we want to, there's many different reasons about what can affect breast milk production. And so some of it can be maternal pain. So is it, you know, how that discomfort, any illnesses that the mom may have, and as Dina pointed out about why, you know, we think about breastfeeding rates going down to that three month mark, returning to work, other anxiety and stress as you're trying to be a new parent or trying to balance the family. So really trying to deal and address these underlying conditions that may be, or situations that may be affecting milk production. And there are pharmacologic, uh, as you mentioned, these teas, um, and they different medicines that may have like milk thistle and fenugreek and metoclopramide as, as possible. And outside the United States, there's also domperidone. But really, most of these medications don't have the data to show that there's efficacy. So there's not one magic answer. Um, and so really, I think a lot of these medicines are used because you want to try something. And um, again, the data is very limited. And so I would, again, trying to really understand the whole situation and the dynamic and figuring out what we can do to support the mom. I do remember one thing that my pediatrician told me, and I guess this is, I don't know if this is obvious or not, but you know, to really stay hydrated and to increase water intake. So I don't know if that's something that you recommend. Um, but that seemed like a pretty innocuous thing and really probably a good thing that I should be doing, um, you know, regardless of whether or not I was nursing. In terms of breast milk and composition, maternal diet and hydration can definitely play a role in that. So those, those, that's a definitely a great idea. All right. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit. We've talked a lot about, you know, breast milk and breastfeeding. Let's, let's start talking about formula. Just to note that Anthony, Dina, and uh, Andrea and I could probably talk for 10 hours about these topics. So we're doing our best to highlight things that we typically get questions about. But remember, there's going to be a second part to this episode. And then I have a feeling we're going to be hearing from, from Dina and Anthony again. Maybe we'll do an Instagram live or something. But but let's get into it. So we we did a post. I don't remember when it was, Andrea. It must have been, I don't know, was it like summer of 2022? Whatever it was. Yeah, I think it was during the formula shortage, perhaps? Yes. Yes. So we actually did a few posts, but one of the posts that we did was um, trying to address similarities and differences in outcomes for breastfed babies versus formula-fed babies. And there are so many studies on these topics, so it's really hard to know what to focus on in this conversation. But three outcomes that came up quite a bit are... um, likelihood of developing allergies, IQ, and immune function. So I'm not even going to touch immune function, Andrea. We're going to have to turn to you to weigh in. But let, let's talk about allergies. So I was looking at, you know, there were so, so, so many studies. We'll link to a bunch in our show notes. But the main takeaway, a recent study that was published that compared breastfeeding to formula feeding, they found that compared to direct feeding at the breast for three months, formula feeding did not increase the risk for food allergy in children. And actually, it was that exposure to multiple sources of food in the first three months that seemed to increase the risk of allergic symptoms. So no major differences there. But of course, Anthony, Dina, Andrea, feel free to weigh in. Let me just finish my my next thought. Oh, sorry. No, Andrea, go in. Go in. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, developing allergies, of course, is an immune, immune system mediated process. 
And, um, you know, there's been a lot of change and guidance over the years. You know, there's some decades old recommendations that, you know, are not up to date that that's, you know, previously recommended that kids, you know, certain foods were withheld from kids. Um, those are typically, you know, as they're getting older, not kind of during the the infancy period or kind of early infancy period. But development of allergies is certainly multifactorial. And so that, you know, the data that demonstrate that formula is not going to predispose a child or an infant to developing allergies, you know, more likely than than breastfeeding is not terribly um, surprising. All right. So IQ and cognition. There were so many studies on this. I'm going to tell you right now that a lot of the studies were conflicting. I came across a study that, that you know, using my background in data science, I thought it was a very well-designed study. We'll link to it on our show notes. And it found that breastfeeding had no impact on a child's overall neurocognitive function by the time they're 16 years old. So this idea that there are these long-term impacts and that if you're formula feeding, you know, you're, you're doing a disservice to, to your child and they're going to have a lower IQ. It's just not supported by the data. Um, there have been some really well-designed, long-term, longitudinal studies that have found that there is no, I'm just going to repeat that, <laughs> no impact on the child's overall neurocognitive function by the time they're 16 years old. Andrea, I know you sort of set the stage here when we were talking about allergies, um, but can we talk a little bit more about immune function? Because Again, you know, we hear all the time that babies who are breastfed, um, they do better long term. They have stronger immune systems, better immune function. Can you just weigh in on that uh, again? Yeah. So, I mean, in the short term, there certainly is a a benefit of of breastfeeding because you're, you know, you're participating in passive transfer of these secretory immunoglobulins. These are called IgA antibodies. And these are going to help protect babies, you know, in the immediacy in case they're exposed to pathogens. However, you know, I do want to be clear that it's not going to outright you know, prevent infection in all instances, but it's going to offer some protection in these in these situations where the immune system has not been exposed to these pathogens, or um, you know, the child is too young to get vaccinated as well. Um, in the context of kind of longer term development, you know, everyone and and you know, it's kind of a little bit of my my passion project I want to tackle, but everyone has a different uh, microbiome, right? So anything you encounter is going to contribute to your microbiome. And this is kind of the the entity of all the trillions of microorganisms that live in and on your body. And that's going to be impacted by what you're exposed to, your physical environment, whether you have pets, you know, what sort of things you're consuming. And if you're nursing or breast, you know, formula feeding in the long term, though, you know, a lot of those things are going to kind of balance out as a child gets older. Right. So there isn't a hard and fast rule where, you know, if an infant was breastfed, they're going to be automatically healthier in the long term than an infant that was formula fed, because a lot of these other factors are going to play a role in in overall immune system development, education, susceptibility to infections. There are so many different components that all contribute to this. So again, yes, there is an immediate benefit. Um, There's also... So nursing moms may also shed cells in their breast milk, in particular certain types of lymphocytes. So these are these white blood cells that can help protect. So there is a little bit of evidence that it can also help stimulate the development of of some level of active immunity in an infant, and that can help ward off 
early age infections or illnesses. But again, don't panic if you weren't able to breastfeed or if you were a person that was not breastfed as a child, um, because a lot of these things are going to kind of normalize as you get older and develop. Right. And so again, you know, there is a reason that the AAP and the World Health Organization, you know, they're recommending breastfeeding, you you know, if you if you can. Right. Um, But I think, again, we're just sort of underscoring that if you're formula feeding your baby, your your baby's going to be fine. And I really, I'm like sort of watching every word I'm saying. <laughs> I was saying before we hit record, I feel like we're walking on eggshells. Um, cause I know, you know, people who, um, people have a lot of strong opinions about infant feeding. It's obviously really important, deeply personal. Um, and anyway, lot, lots of different thoughts on this, but let, let's talk more about formula. Just talking about the cost of purchasing formula. I think I, I read an estimate that families can expect to pay between one to $2,000 on formula if they're formula feeding their, um, their baby exclusively. And I, I guess that was for the first year of an, of a, a child's life. I'll have to firm that up and, you know, we'll get that statistic in our, in our show notes. Um, formula is expensive. There's a range of costs for formula, different types of formula. We'll talk about that. I remember, um, you know, I, I had infants before there was a shortage. And even then, whenever my pediatrician was giving out samples, it was like pure gold to get a formula sample. We do want to mention that WIC does provide formula and food for families, and they can connect people to trained professionals who provide health screenings, breastfeeding support, and nutrition advice. And you can actually also participate in WIC while you're pregnant. So if you have any questions about this, we'll link to this on our show notes, but definitely contact your local WIC clinic to see if you or your family is eligible. Let's get into infant formula and composition. There are so many different types of formulas on the market. Anthony and Dina, let's talk about it. You know, how does someone know which formula to buy? What's best? What are the differences between formula types? Can you sort of set the stage here? These poor parents. I mean, you go to the formula aisle and you're like, dear goodness, like there's so much on here. So the way we think about it is we break it down into macronutrients, so proteins, carbs, and fats. So the first is protein, you know, so there's cow's milk protein, um, and these formulas contain cow's milk protein in its complete form. So they're usually the first formulas that are tried, um, and the majority of infants will grow just well on these formulas. And then I think of it as a second level, which is gentle or partially hydrolyzed protein. Um, And these formulas contain proteins that are partially broken down, but can still contain larger milk proteins. Um, And those formulas are not good. They're not the the formulas that we recommend for babies with cow's milk protein allergy. Now the next, the third level is these extensively hydrolyzed protein, and these formulas contain proteins that are all broken down into small um, protein pieces, and they're typically fed to the um, infants with cow's milk protein allergy or milk protein-induced practicolitis. Then um, above that is the amino acid-based formula, so these formulas contain the proteins that are broken down into the smallest protein unit, um, known as amino acids, um, and they can be offered to infants, again, with cow's milk protein allergy or um, milk protein-induced uh, practicolitis. And then there's other formulas like soy formulas, which are now been rebranded as um, plant-based formulas. Um, so these formulas contain soy protein, but unlike cow's milk protein formulas, they are lactose-free. Um, and they're used for some metabolic disorders, such as galactosemia, um, temporarily some pediatricians will recommend that they have to diarrheal illness, or for those parents who are strictly vegan, they might want to use these soy formulas. Anthony, do you want to maybe get into carbohydrates, and maybe are there certain formulas that you don't recommend? What formula is, it's really a formula of ingredients to 
give your child what they need to grow and develop, right? And so when we think about carbohydrates, we know that in breast milk, that lactose is the main form of carbohydrate. And there's other things in breast milk like HMOs, which are like prebiotics that can sort of help support the, the child's growth and development as well. So most formulas should have lactose as its base. And that's um, pretty much true. The majority of US formulas have lactose as its, as its carbohydrate source. Sometimes other carbohydrates are added. So like maltodextrin is a thickener and sometimes they're used in formulas that are marketed to help with reflux. And these are the AR formulas. And then sometimes in the partial hydrolysate formulas or the extensively hydrolyzed protein or amino acid-based formulas, you have a lactose alternative. Um, and so these can be in the form of corn syrup solids, brown rice syrup, glucose syrup, and then maltodextrin, as I mentioned. And so what is interesting is that when you use a lactose alternative or another carbohydrate um, source, that carbohydrate tends to be sweeter than lactose is. And there has been recent research that has looked at approximately like 25% of formulas sold in the United States are using a carbohydrate that is different than lactose. And data out of California looking uh, specifically at um, California WIC participants, they looked at those who were on a formula that contained lactose, comparing those who were on a corn syrup solid formula. And what the association was as they followed these uh, individuals for four years is that there was a higher association. Again, it's not causal because there's other factors that could be playing in this, but there was a higher association of obesity. There was also a the amount of time that you were on the formula or exposed to the sugar, the higher rate of the obesity, the more likely you're going to be associated with having obesity. So I think more data is needed. But in my mind, when we think about carbohydrates, lactose intolerance or lactose problems with lactose is so rare in children. So we talked briefly about galactosemia. That's a metabolic condition where children cannot break down the milk sugar, right? Cannot break down lactose. That's a reason to be on a lactose-free formula. Many times, especially the European formulas, which we'll talk about on either this time or at the next next um, podcast, European formulas, the partial hydrolysate formulas actually contain lactose because kids don't have congenital lactase deficiency. It's very rare. Even our premature infants do well with lactose. So in our mind at this point, I would stay with a formula and recommend a formula that contains lactose. Now, another thing that I think it can be somewhat, it seems to be somewhat controversial. Let's talk about fat, Dina. So, you know, sometimes oils are added to, to formulas. So I think we should talk about that because I think there are a lot of misconceptions that need to be addressed. So can you kind of talk about fat composition and, and why oils are added to certain formulas? Of course, so breast milk, is, you know, fat is made up of over about 150 different types of fatty acids, um, including high contents of palmitic and oleic acids. So many of the fatty acids in breast milk are also found in common vegetable oils like palm and safflower and rapeseed oil. So that's why these vegetable oils are found in formula to try to mimic, you know, breast milk fat. Um, and now in the base of infant formulas, either you're going to be skim milk or whole milk. Um, and oil then is added to the base to achieve a fatty acid profile that's closer to breast milk. So formulas that contain whole milk need less vegetable oil added to the, you know, obtain that desired ratio. And there's also, you know, DHA added to formula, which is interesting because in the U.S., DHA is not um, a requirement for infant formulas, whereas recently, about a year or two ago, it was a made a standard of European formulas um, at 20 milligrams per 100 calories. 
you know, so there's a slight difference between U.S. and European formulas, but the oils are basically added to produce the fat content um, to mimic them in human milk. Andrea, do you want to jump in and maybe just briefly address some of the misinformation on seed oils? Yes. And we do plan to tackle this, you know, more comprehensively kind of separate from from the the formula topic. But, you know, as as Anthony noted, you know, the whole goal of formula is to basically replicate what breast milk is, right? The correct profile of protein, carbohydrates, fats, ideally matching the molecular structure and the molecular composition. And so, you know, if you have these unsaturated fatty acids or unsaturated oils in breast milk, you know, then you're going to source them from other sources when you're replicating that in the context of formula. Thanks to social media and thanks to some very passionate paleo diet fitness influencers, really just a few years ago, seed oils, in particular canola oil, soy oils, rapeseed oils, things like that, have all of a sudden become vilified as being toxic and supposedly inflammatory. And very clearly, none of that is true. You know, seed oils, in and of themselves are not dangerous. They've often been conflated with like industrial processing practices or, you know, linked to other sorts of ultra processed foods that are just generally unhealthy. But there's nothing inherently inflammatory. There's nothing inherently dangerous. And there's certainly nothing inherently toxic about seed oils. So you don't need to fear if your formula that you're using includes certain types of vegetable oils in order to reconstitute um, the proportion of fats in those in those formulas. So I know we're uh, almost over on time here, but um, Anthony, Dina, anything else you want to talk about in terms of formula composition, any micronutrients or new ingredients that are being added to formulas before we move on to the final topic before we wrap up? Sure. I mean, I think the thing to realize is that the FDA in the United States for U.S registered infant formula, is that there's the right amount of fat, protein, and carbohydrates, which we talked about. And then there's also guidelines for the essential nutrients that a child needs to grow. I think there's been some... Um, and so that means any formula you buy will have these ingredients. There are some what I would call like boutique ingredients, whether it's DHA in the United States, which comes in variable amounts, as Dina mentioned, but there's also lactoferrin, MFGM that's also been added. And again, these are in some formulas, but a lot of the data on ingredients really is almost marketed towards how do we get closer to breast milk, but we're really unsure whether adding that one ingredient to formula actually has the same impact because we know how biodynamic breast milk is and maybe adding that one ingredient really isn't doing much. And so the long-term data, I think, isn't there yet. And so the question we often get is with two nutrients, specifically iron and vitamin D. Iron levels tend to be higher in U.S. infant formula compared to over Overseas. And the reason for that is it, higher doses were higher levels were added to be able to address iron deficiency that when we did increase the levels went from about 20% to less than 2%. So I think that is a, a reason that that was done. However, in Europe, we have the stages. So that's why also the level is a little bit different because the first six months you may need a little less iron where you may need a little bit more iron in the second. So I think just understanding those, those levels are important and understanding that at the end of the day, whether you're buying a brand that you know or you switch to a store brand, you're getting the same. And to your point, Jess, 
The cost is is also something that people have to be mindful of and knowing that when you buy that store brand, you're still meeting all the nutrition requirements that have been set by the FDA. All right, Dina, another thing we just have to chat about um, and then we'll wrap this episode and trust us, we know you have more questions. We're going to do our best to address those in in the second episode um, on this topic. Organic, how important is it for, for parents to buy organic formula if they're formula feeding their infant? So yes, um, it's an option. If, if, if organic is important to you, then it's an option out there. Are there studies showing long-term benefits of organic formula? No. I mean, it is not needed. And, you know, generic formula is just as fine. And I never want to caution anybody. If you can't afford an organic formula, it's totally fine. Your baby will grow just as healthy as a non-organic formula. Um, but if you want that option, it's there. But you do not need an organic formula in my mind. Andrea, I have a feeling that you have something to say about this. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, a lot of times when you see, you do a Google search for, you know, should I feed my baby organic or conventional formula? A lot of the articles talk about pesticide residues and that organic products are free from pesticide residues. And that is a fallacy. What they're referring to are conventional pesticides, but organic pesticides are used in organic farming and they're not monitored by the EPA or USDA like conventional pesticides are. And so if someone is claiming that something's free from pesticide residues, they're not including organic pesticides in the scope of that. And organic pesticides are indeed used. So organic products are not pesticide free. They're also not synthetic chemical free. Not that synthetic chemicals are bad. You know, everything is chemicals. And there's also no evidence that organic products are are higher in nutrition than conventional counterparts. There's also a lot of claims about, you know, organic products are GMO free. But again, there are decades of data to demonstrate that that GMO organisms uh, are not harmful. They're not changing your DNA. They're not, you know, impeding your health. And we have covered these topics at length. Um, So we have four podcast episodes, two on GMOs and genetic engineering, two on organics. So so please listen to those if you have more questions about that specific topic. All right, Andrea, do you want to take us home? (laughs) I know we covered a lot of ground here and we have more to cover. We sure do. So um, I want to thank Dina and Anthony for joining us today um, so we could have this really thorough discussion. And if you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. We post extended content there and regularly respond to questions and comments from subscribers. But the biggest perk is you have access to our private Facebook group, our monthly live Q&As, and you also get to submit questions to our Herd from the Herd segments on every podcast episode. It is $5 a month for a paid subscription, so check it out at theunbiasedsidepod.substack.com. Next episode, we're going to cover part two, even more about infant feeding, particularly about current trends in infant feeding, European formulas, storing breast milk, and more. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID, RSV, influenza, and live Lots of other topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist.